Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I post episodes weekly, usually on Tuesdays, on pretty much whatever I like. So welcome. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn at a Ugandan babe, all one word. Also, rate and review the podcast on Spotify or on other podcasts, and then come back. Thank you. I'm recording this at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning because that seems to be the only time at the moment that there isn't like a million things going on. So if my voice is a little bit raspy, that's the reason why. Now, today's story is a little complicated, so bear with me if it feels a little all over the place in terms of the build-up. It's a tale about how stories themselves, however interesting, can be corrupted and be used to spin a narrative that may not stand up to further scrutiny and the wills of time. It takes us to the land of Greece, officially the Hellenic Republic, a country in southeast Europe situated on the southern tip of the Balkans and at the crossroads of Europe, Asia and Africa. We'll be exploring more myths and legends, the stories we tell about ourselves that triangulate where we fit in the world, that anchor us before we look outwards, that communicate our values, our belief systems, and inadvertently help us map where we are going. Taking lessons from the past so that we can forge a path ahead. Now you may have heard the story before, but I'm hoping we can explore some new perspectives on it. Like many other Greek myths, you were likely introduced to these characters by the Walt Disney Company, commonly known as Disney. That American titan of entertainment and media that fed so many of us our earliest childhood stories. I remember clear as day the first time I watched Hercules, that handsome and dashing hero with the golden hair, his father, the Olympian god Zeus, a sort of benevolent grandfatherly god, his wife Hera, elegant, refined, graceful, and the rest of the Olympians, each more fascinating than the last, at least according to Disney. In actual fact, many of the Greek gods really had issues. When you go back and read these stories from the source material and deep what they actually say, each story is wilder than the last. The gods and the heroes were often terrible, greedy, grasping, self-involved, and much, much worse. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the beginning, to a brief introduction to Greek mythology and the origins of the Greek pantheon of gods. Now, like all other mythologies, Greek mythology is the body of myths originally told by the ancient Greeks that concern the origin and nature of the world, the lives and activities of deities, heroes, and mythological creatures, and the origins and significance of the ancient Greeks' cult and ritual practices. Initially propagated in an oral poetic tradition starting in the 18th century before Christ, Eventually, the myths of the heroes of the Trojan War and its aftermath became part of the oral tradition of the ancient Greek author and epic poet Homer's poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Two poems by Homer's near-contemporary Hesiod, the Theogony and the Works and Days 
contain accounts of the genesis of the world, the succession of divine rulers and of human ages, the origin of human wars and of sacrificial practices. Myths are also preserved in fragments of epic and lyric poems in the works of tragedians and comedians of the 5th century before Christ, in writings of scholars and poets of the Hellenistic age, and in texts from the time of the Roman Empire by writers such as Plutarch and Pausanias. Greek mythology tells us that there were four generations of immortal beings, starting with the primordial parents Uranus, the sky, and Gaia, the earth. Uranus and Gaia then birthed the pre-Olympian gods, the Titans, six male and six female, <coughs> who included Oceanus, Cryas, Hyperion, Cronus, Thea, Rhea, Themis, Phoebe, among others. Some of their descendants, such as Prometheus, Helios, and Leto, are sometimes also called Titans. Now, the, the Titans, Cronus, and Rhea then bore the first generation of Olympians, who were a race of 12 deities, primarily consisting of a third and fourth generation of immortal beings, worshipped as the principal gods of the Greek pantheon and so named because of their residency atop Mount Olympus. The story of the overthrow of the Titans is told in the Greek succession myth, which tells how Cronus seized power from his father Uranus and ruled the cosmos with his fellow Titans before being in turn defeated and replaced as the ruling pantheon of gods by Zeus and the Olympians. As a result of this war of the gods, Cronus and the vanquished Titans were banished from the upper world and held imprisoned under guard in Tartarus, although some, it is said, were allowed to remain free. Then came the age of the Olympians, a family of gods, the most important consisting of the first generation, Zeus, Poseidon, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia, along with the principal offspring of Zeus. Those were Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Ares, Aphrodite, Hephaestus, Hermes, and Dionysus. Now, although Hades was a major deity in the Greek pantheon and was the brother of Zeus and the first generation of Olympians, his realm was so far away from Olympus in the underworld that he was not usually considered to be one of the Olympians. Our story today involves two of these Olympian gods, Poseidon and his niece Athena. Athena, daughter of Zeus, king of the gods of Olympus, was the ancient Greek goddess associated with wisdom, handicraft, and warfare later associated with the Roman goddess Minerva. Athena was described as urbane and civilized, the very antithesis in many respects of her sister Artemis, goddess of the hunt and the wilderness. Athena was regarded as the patron and protectress of many cities across Greece, particularly the city of Athens, and the Parthenon on the Acropolis of Athens is dedicated to her, along with numerous other temples and monuments. In art, she is generally depicted wearing a helmet and holding a spear. The earliest mention of Athena's birth is in the Iliad, when her brother Ares, the god of war, accused Zeus of being biased in her favor because he gave birth to her, quite literally. 
In a version of the story recounted by the ancient Greek poet Hesiod in his Theogony, Zeus married the goddess Metis, who was described as the wisest among gods and mortal men, and he lay with her. Now, after learning that Metis was pregnant, he became afraid that the child would try to overthrow him because the primordial gods Gaia and Uranus had prophesied that Metis would bear children wiser than their father. So in order to prevent this, Zeus swallowed Metis whole, but it was too late because she had already conceived. A later account of a story makes Metis Zeus's unwilling sexual partner rather than his wife. According to this version of a story, Metis transformed into many different shapes in an effort to escape Zeus, but he forced himself on her and then swallowed her whole. Zeus then took six more wives in succession until he married his seventh and final wife, Hera. Then he suffered a terrible migraine and was in such pain that he ordered the titan Prometheus to cleave his head open with a Minoan axe and Athena leapt from Zeus's head fully grown and armed. Homer's hymn to Athena says that the gods were so awestruck by her appearance that even Helios, the god of the sun, stopped his chariot in the sky to gaze upon her. Athena was the patron goddess of heroic endeavor. She was believed to have aided the heroes Perseus, Heracles, Jason, and others. She plays an active role in Homer's Iliad, in which she aids the Achaeans, and in the Odyssey, she is the divine counselor to Odysseus. From the Renaissance onwards, Athena became an international symbol of wisdom, the arts and classical learning, and Western artists and allegorists went on to use Athena as a symbol of freedom and democracy. The second character in our story is Poseidon, Athena's uncle, also an Olympian, god of the seas, storms, earthquakes, and horses. The poets Homer and Hesiod suggest that Poseidon became lord of the sea following the defeat of his father Cronus when the world was divided by Lot among his three sons. Zeus was given the sky, Hades the underworld, and Poseidon the sea, with the earth and Mount Olympus belonging to all three. In Homer's Iliad, Poseidon backed the Greeks against the Trojans during the Trojan War, and in the Odyssey, during the sea voyage from Troy back home to Ithaca, the Greek hero Odysseus provokes Poseidon's fury by blinding his son, the Cyclops Polyphemus, resulting in Poseidon punishing him with storms, the complete loss of his ship and companions, and a 10-year delay on his journey. Like his big brother Zeus, Poseidon, being a god, was extremely entitled and a bit of a waste man. Whatever he wanted, he considered his right to take, and this of course extended to the arena of love, if we can even call it that. He pursued and harassed his love interest just because he could. You could hardly refuse a god, right? Though many certainly tried. And the final piece in our tale is Medusa, a beautiful maiden and daughter of a primordial sea god and Keto, a sea monster goddess. Now, unlike her sisters, Medusa was mortal, and the poet Pindar described her as fair-cheeked. One day, she caught the eye of Poseidon, and when Poseidon came to her, 
Medusa, knowing his reputation as a lustful and lecherous god, wanted nothing to do with him and ran from him, taking shelter in the temple of Athena, hoping that this would deter him. But Poseidon caught up to her and violated her, and in a last-ditch effort to save herself, Medusa called out to the goddess Athena to save her. When Athena came upon the scene of Poseidon forcing himself on Medusa at the feet of her statue in her sacred temple, she was disgusted and livid. But remember, Athena was first a goddess and Poseidon was her uncle. So like a real pygmy, she directed her anger at Medusa, the victim of a brutal attack. According to Athena, since it was Medusa's beauty that had, had attracted Poseidon, she cast her so that her beautiful hair became writhing snakes and her gaze turned all who looked upon her into stone so that no man would look at her ever again. So Poseidon raped Medusa on the floor of Athena's temple, who then turned her into a monster. But the story doesn't even end there. After suffering all these indignities, Medusa was later beheaded by the so-called hero Perseus, and he received help in doing this from none other than Athena, who gave him the mirrored shield that allowed him to approach Medusa safe from her deadly glance. Some retellings attempt to dismiss this account. They claim that the encounter between Poseidon and Medusa was consensual. However, Greek mythology is littered with the gods, so titans, Olympians, and heroes forcing themselves on unwilling victims. Poseidon himself, despite having a consort, Amphitrite, is said to have had many lovers and forced himself on many more. In one account, a mortal woman named Tyro loved the river god Enipeus, who she pursued without success. So Poseidon, filled with lust for her, disguised himself as Enipeus and had his way with her. In another account, Poseidon had an affair with his granddaughter Alope, leading to his son, her father, bearing her alive. Poseidon also rescued Amimone from a lecherous satyr that woodland god represented as a man with a horse's ears and tail, but then turned around and lay with her. In addition, after forcing himself on Canius, Poseidon fulfilled her request and transformed her into a male warrior. Finally, Poseidon also once pursued Demeter, the Olympian goddess of the harvest. She spanned his advances, turning herself into a mare so that she could hide in a herd of horses. But he saw through the deception and became a stallion and forced himself on her. So, we see through numerous accounts that Poseidon was a nasty piece of work, and it is interesting to me that throughout antiquity, Medusa has been cast as the villain of the piece, and yet by all accounts, she was Poseidon's victim, and Athena simply lacked the courage that is so often attributed to her and failed to stand up for Medusa. Unfortunately, this is not a unique story in history. Myths and legends and other stories being littered with countless examples of women who were demonized for their beauty and sexuality by jealous, vengeful and powerful gods, men and women. 
here are just a few examples taken from an article that I will link in the description box, starting with Cleopatra of Egypt, who was portrayed as a harlot who used her sexuality to control powerful men like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Rarely mentioned are her intelligence and excellent capability as a politician, ruling one of the most powerful kingdoms in history. Cleopatra strove to protect her territory and her country as she sought to safeguard her children's future. Her consistent portrayal as a temptress is a result of a smear campaign spearheaded by Octavius, later Augustus, who sought to discredit her and Mark Antony in the struggle for the rule of Rome. History also loves to portray Anne Boleyn as a temptress. After all, it was for her sake that Henry VIII of England broke with the church and courted scandal. She was also accused of sorcery, while the rumors of extra fingers and her monster baby continue to this day. Anne Boleyn was executed for adultery and incest, solidifying her harlot persona. What history doesn't mention is that Anne was an intelligent supporter of the reformist ideology and a patron of scholars. She was undoubtedly a pragmatic woman who took advantage of her beauty, but the allegations of sexual deviance and devil worship are unfounded. Next, we come to Marie Antoinette. <laughs> One thing is for sure, she never said, let them eat cake. Often portrayed as an airhead, Marie Antoinette was vilified for her extravagant spending and lack of compassion for the peasants of France. In reality, she was just an easy target because she was Austrian and an aristocrat. According to later studies, Marie Antoinette was allegedly compassionate to the poor and her dedicated mother and even criticized the lavish spending of the French nobility during the country's bankrupt years. But none of these mattered to the revolutionaries and then incorrectly attributed Quip and her a quick trip to the guillotine. Wu Zetian, China's only female ruler, began her rise to power as a concubine, not to one, but two emperors. She is often portrayed as a violent tyrant who killed her daughter. Wu supposedly had her enemy concubines arrested and their hands and feet amputated. She was a ruthless politician, however there is no reason to believe that these wild claims of cruelty are true. She was an efficient ruler, no more tyrannical than her male counterparts, and her reign was peaceful and prosperous. Unfortunately, her gender and her support for Buddhism made her an easy target for the Confucians who compiled China's imperial chronicles. Originally regent for Tutmose III, Hatshepsut of Egypt was later crowned pharaoh and ruled as such. Her reign was remarkable. She built temples, extended the empire's influence, and increased the contents of its coffers. Her successors, however, were not impressed. There was a systematic attempt to erase Hatshepsut from history. Her monuments, statues, and obelisks were destroyed. Any references to Hatshepsut's reign would thereafter be colored by her supposed greed and ruthlessness, although her actual reign showed no such signs. Mary I of England sent 283 Protestants to their deaths, mostly by burning, during an attempt to restore Catholicism to England. But she wasn't bloodthirsty, and she was no more violent than other monarchs of her time. Her father, Henry VIII, for example, sent more than 50,000 to the gallows. 
Mary I was a capable ruler and paved the way for much of Elizabeth I's achievements. The nickname Bloody Mary, which was coined by the Protestant supporters of her sister, stuck and created the perception that she was an evil woman. Finally, and this is one that really surprised me, the most famous prostitute in history wasn't a prostitute at all. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in the Gospels, but not once is she referred to as a prostitute. It was Pope Gregory the Great who mistakenly declared her so. Mary Magdalene was actually a well-to-do woman who financially contributed to Jesus' ministry. She was also one of his followers, whom according to one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Philip, Jesus loved more than all the disciples. And that's where our tale ends for today. Hopefully the next time you hear a story of some over-sexualized, manipulative and vicious female figure in history, you will stop and consider whether there might be another side to the story. As always, thanks for listening. Give us a like and subscribe to the channel if you enjoyed this episode. And follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and on LinkedIn at babe to continue the conversation. I hope you'll be back for the next one. Goodbye for now. Thank you.